Welcome to Call Your Girlfriend, a podcast for long-distance besties everywhere. I'm Amina Tussauds. And I'm Ann Friedman. Hey, Ann Friedman. I am very thankful and grateful for you this holiday season. Oh my God, same. I, um, and I really feel like just leaving it at gratitude is the, right, is the right move when we are dealing with this particular American holiday. I really, like, I really just want to focus on that. And I am grateful to hear your voice today. Like A pleasure today and always. <laughs> same, same, same. Another friend that I am very grateful and thankful for um, is who I talk to today. Oh my God. You mean like for this episode? <laughs> yes. I mean for this episode. Can you tell that I'm like rusty at doing intros because I don't do them anymore? I love that. I'm I'm so excited to listen. And I also, um, you know, anytime it's like a friend of a friend, I have like a special interest where I'm like, mm, it's like me eavesdropping on like, you know, what goes on with my friends-in-law and you in conversation. It's like the biggest treat. Well, let me tell you about today's amazing guest who is also one of my favorite writers this is like a this is kind of like you it's one of my favorite stories when you read someone before you meet them and you're like oh I was a fan of your ideas and now I know you as a human it makes me happy but today's guest is Ariel Levy who is a staff writer at The New Yorker. She's also written many books, namely Female Chauvinist Pegs and her incredible memoir, The Rules Do Not Apply. She is also the co-author of Demi Moore's memoir, Inside Out. If you haven't listened to that on audiobook, you are really missing out. And... Um, Ariel's like us. She's a uh, she's an media entrepreneur. So her latest foray is in podcasting, and she is the host of this kind of like memoir like podcast on Liz Lang. Do you know who Liz Lang is? Um, yes, I think, but I will confess that I know only because I read like a related article that Ariel wrote tied to the podcast. I don't know if I would have known. Please explain. Uh, amazing. Well, I I am obsessed with Liz Lang because like. I like fashion, but Liz Lang revolutionized maternity wear in the 90s. And the podcast is called The Just Enough Family, and it like offers insight on like Liz's family, the Steinbergs. They're basically like a tabloid fixture family in like 20th century New York, like our very own Kardashians before uh, reality TV. Bold, and bold words. I can't wait. <laughs> I, no, truly. And the podcast is truly amazing. And I really mean that it is like memoir like. Um, and like all things Ariel, it's just like very riveting and very personal. And so I was excited to talk to her about like kind of what she's been up to, about like what it was like, um, you know, doing this podcast and also, you know, like what's kind of going on in her world right now. I'm so excited to listen. I also have been reading her writing forever. And so this is just a double bonus for me, like friend of friend plus writer I've been reading for ages. I can't wait to listen. Uh, I just love like a deeply curious person who is not judgmental and just like lets their curiosity unfold for everyone. Like that has been um, like a true highlight of like reading Ari and also like now hearing her be a podcast host. It's the best. I'm Arielle Levy, and I'm the host of the Just Enough Family podcast, and I'm a writer at the New Yorker magazine. Oh, my gosh. Wow. When we have royalty, come visit the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's good to be here today. Amina, thanks for rolling out the red carpet. You know, this is this is it. This is it, man. It's sorry we didn't send you snacks or some water or some, you know. I'm in my bathtub. I've got my snacks. I've got it all. I love it. We're both recording from the bathroom today. That makes me very happy. It's the only place to be. You know, sometimes it is the quietest room in the house. It's definitely the nicest room in my house. Well, you're a podcaster now. I've been a longtime podcaster. Tell me about your transition into podcasting because, wow. Well, I thought it was fun that you went with a whole microphone to interview people. Like 
it's just a very different, you know, I'm used to sitting, trying to get people to tell me things with like a pad and a pen. So sitting there with- Wait, you don't record people when you're like going to Diana Nyad's house? You don't have a recorder with you? You're no. writing this down? Well, no. I have my like stupid iPhone recording or, okay. I, or I used to have, you know, like a little tape recorder. I actually am so, when I started, I had a tape recorder with little tapes and I still have all those tapes. I don't know what to do with them. Anyway, the point is. <laughs> we'll donate to, them to a women's university. Don't worry about a it. A women's ideas festival. Exactly. Yes. To business women's conference. So, but now, but so it's very different having that little thing on than it is like actually having a mic that you're holding in earphones and you're like a whole little tech unit, like a little robot, you know? Well, have you been enjoying it, enjoying it? Or was it challenging? Or has it been an adjustment? Like, you know, how do you switch from like writer interview brain to podcast interview brain? Well, I just think like it's a little bit more like I'm aware that I'm a part of the show. You know what mm. I mean? Like, so I try to be present, which I always obviously try to do when I'm interviewing people. And I even sometimes try to do it in life. But but when I'm interviewing people, I'm really trying to get into what they're saying and, and be fully inside of it. So there's this like slight distraction when you're trying to record them. And you're also aware you're in it too. You know, you're a, a character in the show in a way that you're not on the page or that I don't want to be on the page. Um, is it uncomfortable or is it just different? It's just different. I thought it was really fun because it's something new that I'd never done before, you know, and that's that's so much fun to be trying a different thing. Uh, I love that you're like a little entrepreneur. You're like, let's try different things. You are exactly the same way. It's how you try writing TV and this and that and just doing different stuff so you don't, you know, become, so you still enjoy the freshness of like what an awesome thing it is to get to do what we do. I love that this is how you describe the precarity of millennial employment is that you're framing it as freshness. So I appreciate it. You know why, my buddy? It's because I'm not millennial. <laughs> I kind just of turned are, 40, wait, 47 I just turned. You yeah, know, ba basically a geriatric millennial. I am a middle-aged woman now. I am a middle-aged <laughs> Gen X woman. I don't know why I'm so proud of that all of a sudden. Oh my God. I like, um, I love that for you though. Um, Thanks. Thanks very much. I, I don't know. So I've, I've listened to your podcast and I have to say that it is so well done. Aww. It It is. Okay. It's called the Just Enough Family for the listeners at home. And it's hosted by this lovely person. And it's this eight episode series about um, the story of the Steinberg family who are some would say the Jewish Kennedys. It's a very New York kind of story. And it's also a story that I knew nothing about until you started talking to me about it. And seeing you both report out the story, but also every single character on this podcast is bananas. <laughs> like you just have, you know, I was like, how did you even luck into all of these characters? I can't like, perfect. you know, perfect story for the perfect host for the perfect moment. But it, I don't know. It's been really fun, like being someone who read you and then being someone who now listens to you and like seeing that reportage come alive. Thank you so much. And thank you for even listening. Like, it's just really a fun thing to do to be able to say, here's a thing that I was part of making and it isn't made of pages. So it's, I'm still into the novelty of it all. Um, but Two things. First of all, it's interesting that you should say it's a very New York story because on the one hand, it absolutely is. It's all about, you know, this, this guy who moved his entire family from Long Island to Park Avenue, like with the sheer force of his intellect and the brute force of his wealth that he made, you know, being a at first an entrepreneur and then later a corporate raider. Anyway, the thing is, on the one hand, it's a very New York story. And the other hand, I feel so much like Dallas and Dynasty to me. 100%. 100%. It is, like, I don't, there's something about my brain that I, I don't know. There's something about, like, hyper-specificity of your location. Yeah. And then family drama. And then, like, feuding people and deception and over-the-top parties. All You put all of that together. I don't care where you're located. I'm into it. Yeah, it's a it's a fun little cocktail. I mean, because on the one hand, you've got all that that money stuff, which is just always like Dallas Dynasty. 
exciting to, to hear about. But on the other hand, this is a family where every member of the family is perfectly happy to get on the microphone and just say the whole, like a really intimate truth about what their experience was in relation to other members of the family. I mean, okay, can you walk, without giving too many spoilers, can you walk us through um, this podcast? Some okay. of the characters and what's at stake here. All right, so it all starts with my friend Liz Lang. And she comes from this family, the Steinbergs, who were one of the richest families in, the, in America until they I'm going to pause you right here. Liz Lang of Liz Lang maternity fame. That's correct. Liz okay. Lang, you've heard of her because... I mean, it's certainly if you're a Gen X or above, you've heard of her because when because in the 90s, she had this line of maternity wear that like turned the maternity wear market inside out. Now all maternity wear looks like that. It's all stretchy and clingy instead of being like a big, you know, tent that makes you look like a baby yourself, like a giant baby. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it looked like. They looked like giant babies. They couldn't go to the boardroom. And so speaking of businesswomen, they like got these clothes they could go and be taken seriously. And Liz inadvertently did this very feminist thing because she, of course, doesn't like to call herself a feminist. She's not from that world. She's from this world of the hyper wealthy Jewish immigrants who came to Park Avenue and are just like, larging it. And that's what they're thinking about is like corporate success. That's their whole frame of reference. Her uncle Saul Steinberg graduated from Wharton, you know, at 16 and then started working at his father's rubber business, Ideal Rubber. And then out of that company started leasing office equipment to other companies before computers, which sounds very unglamorous, but it was a hole in the market just like stretchy wow. tight maternity wear was a hole in the market. So he made a fortune on that and the company went public before he was 30. And then he leveraged that to buy Reliance Insurance, one of the oldest you know, insurance companies and most august in the country. And his niece is my friend, Liz Lang. So Liz's father, Bobby, who is a fascinating character with a fabulous voice and a pathological liar. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, like, an unbelievable liar becomes clear throughout the course of the podcast. That's her dad. Her dad and his big brother, Saul, like we're in it together, taking New York by storm, taking the business world by storm. And their family got incredibly famous for all this. And they were just like, you know, if, if it was, if it was Dallas, but New York and Jews. Man, how do you get, I mean, I know that, you know, Liz, obviously, but how do you get every single member of this family to just sit down and do therapy on the microphone with you? Because the access is insane to me. Like, I how, mean, how? Amina, that's why they pay me the medium bucks. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That's not why. I mean, partly it's why, partly it's because I've been, you know, interviewing people now for whatever, 25 years. So I, I have developed some skill for that. But also it's because I knew these people. I, ha I mean, I've never done this before. That's the difference for me, besides the fact there was a microphone. This isn't my normal journalism where, like, there's, you know, no crossover between my personal life, my friendships, and my mm -hmm. reporting. This is a friend, so this was something else. Were there moments where you were recording and you just couldn't believe what someone was telling you out loud? Yeah, I was constantly like, OMG, this is gold. Like, they were just telling me everything, how they felt about you know, their mom, how Liz believed her parents that her sister was the dumb one, like just all of them. And then the parents are divorced. They're talking about each other. And I mean, I'm making it sound like just like base gossip, but we try, Melinda Shops and my, my work wife and I obviously tried to organize it into a narrative that had some, you know, some beauty to it. Because the thing I should mention is that it's the reason it's called the Just Enough Family is that when Liz was a kid, she had this, she was writing stories in her head all the time. She had this one that was called the Just Enough Family. And they weren't hurting, they had just enough. And she just had this cozy idea of a family where they weren't constantly like throwing million dollar parties at like the Temple of Dendor. You know, I mean, she was, they, she knew that there was this roiling tension around the money, like, you know, on the show Succession. And so she had a fantasy of a, of a simple, intimate family. You know, she's like Marie Antoinette playing. Yeah, she, just enough. <laughs> just enough. We don't have private planes, but we definitely have a driver. Just yeah, enough. Just enough. 
can. It's oh God, money is such a source of. I mean, it sounds stupid to even say out loud. It's such a source of all of the tension. Yeah, I don't know. As someone who grew up with none of it, I always had the fantasy that the Liz Lang, you know, like they had everything, and I was like, what are they? What are those people complaining about? And now that I hear, you know, now that you hear the other side of it, it's like, hmm, interesting, interesting. I mean, look, it's a you know. It, it's the definition of a high class problem. Like, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying like, don't cry for them, Argentina, but I just mean, it is true that money, I mean, think about your own family. Think about my family. That, that is a big source of conflict and a measure theory. You know, it feels like a measure of love. Where's it, you know, where's it going to yeah. go? Who owes who what? Like talking honestly about what that means is fascinating. I think. You know, and even just this idea, I think, of the just enough family, I, you know, it, it, it yeah, it's like, d- does anybody have and is there any amount of money that is just enough or just okay? You know, like, what, what is that number for every single person? And that number is different. It's different for every person. It's probably different for every person in their family. And then it's different within all the dynamics that they exist in. It's so... It, w- it was like very... Yeah, I don't know. Listening, I'm still thinking about it because... It was just so fascinating to have people be so honest, yes. you know, and, and these are people who have a lot. Usually those are not the people who are very honest and give you like a lot of transparency into kind of how, you know, how their wealth is made, but also how they spend it and how they whatever. And so it was, I, I don't know. I was just like, I just could not believe I was hearing all of this. I, it feels so transgressive, doesn't it? To hear someone it, talk honestly about how much they spent, how much they wanted, how they thought people only wanted to be friends with them because of it. all of that, just to hear them admit that stuff. I mean, and then, I don't know, there is something also very, you know, either like completely psycho or very honest also about a family where everyone is okay telling their side of the story. You know, I'm just saying like, hi, we're not protecting each other. I'm going to tell you exactly how I feel. And I don't know, as someone, I come from a like honor versus shame family. So all we do is protect each other through lying. Um, That it was very refreshing to me to see like another family just be like, actually, we're going to put it all out on the table. And I was like, oh, wow, this is wild. Well, they're an interesting mix, right? Because on the one hand, there's that sort of enviable thing of everyone just says, their truth. They just say it. So you kind of think, well, maybe that's what real intimacy comes from, you know, like if everyone was just upfront. On the other hand, we find out in the middle of the show that one of the characters had a second family. Like, <laughs> so I don't love that. I don't envy that. That doesn't sound so good, so honest. I mean, listen, it. It doesn't, but also listen, listen to the Just Enough family because I could go on and on and on about this, but I think that the experience of listening to it is even more shocking than talking about it. It is shocking. It is fun. It is like, like we tried, Melinda and I were like, let's see if we can make candy, like rock candy in a bathtub. (laughs) Oh my gosh. I mean, Melinda Shopson, your producer and our pal is, I mean, she a very good podcast producer. She's genius. She's she, a real genius. She's like our audio. She's an audio witch. She's an audio witch. She would love to be called an audio full witch. audio witch. An what audio is- witch that sounds like a baby. <laughs> That's a very good Melinda impression. Thank you. Um, how was that relationship like? Going from working with a producer in words, you know, like an editor for words, and then now you have a different kind of system for audio. Like, how did you adapt to that? Well, I only, I don't really have any basis for comparison. Like, I don't know what it's like in general working with producers. I mean, Melinda and I sort of immediately became really, really close friends. And I mean, you've talked about that a lot of times. Like people say like, oh, you shouldn't work with your friends. But it's like, I don't really understand how you get anything. Only work with your friends. Only work with your friends. Yeah. Like it's an intimate thing trying to make a work baby together. You have to, you have to love each other. I, I have to love someone. I sound, I sound so earnest, but I, I mean, that's how I feel about it. It's just, I just thought it was really exciting, like combining brains with this other person who has such a different skill set and, and knows how to, Melinda, you know, runs a restaurant. She's one of the people who runs Shopsons. Like she's a real little, you know, chart making dictatorial baby voice maniac. And I don't have any of those skills. I don't sound like a baby. 
<laughs> Melinda is going to love this. She will. She will. She's she is going to love this. Um, I guess like I do wonder though, you know, like how because you're switching formats. I'm just like fascinated by this because Anne and I talk about this all the time, and obviously uh-huh. like our work takes all these different formats, and you do need people who have different skill sets. But I also think that, you know, there is an adjustment period of for your own self of being like, okay, like I'm doing it in this format versus that format because of XYZ reasons. And also learning to take both direction and editing and, um, you know, I don't know, like hearing someone else's skill set and trusting them. Um, for me, at least, like that took an adjustment period because I'm, you know, I'm like, I'm generally an idiot about everything. But I just like wonder for you, like, did you really just like jump into it being like, this feels great? Or were there moments where you were really like, oh, like, here's what's a little challenging about this? No, I got really stroppy all the time I because this. I wouldn't always know that I didn't understand, you know, like you don't know what you don't know. So I would get all stroppy because I was like, why are you making me do this? <laughs> you know, and Melinda's bossy as hell, you know? And, and so I was very stroppy about it, but, but I, it was a magic combination because she could handle how, how outraged I got at being told what to do. And I could handle how bossy she is. And we were able to learn from each other. We were able to get, you know, it's sort of fun and intimate, like Mm. actually even, even that, even getting, you know, angry at someone you're working with. It's like, you're really doing this together. You're really in there. Um, I think that's the most important thing, right? Is that you're both like, no, 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 I'm committed. I'm actually doing this. Like I'm not walking. I'm going to work through this with you. I love the bossy audio ladies um, because, because they're, they're always right. They're always right. They're always right. Well, that's the thing. It's so irritating. They're always right. Like always listen to your producer. They're always right. Yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's a harsh toke because because I'm not used. I mean, I have an editor at The New Yorker, but he's very gentle and he, you know, he's used to writers and sort of talking to us in a way that we can bear to do something other than our instincts. (laughs) I think there's just also something about not to belabor the podcast point, but I think that I, I don't know when I'm writing, whether it's like a book or a piece or whatever it's, I can see where it lives. And so it feels fine to me when we are recording audio, I don't hear it yet. And, and the producers always hear it. They, they, you know what I mean? I was like, their brains just work in a different way. And I was like, good. I was like, thank God someone's doing that. Because I don't know what we're doing over here. Well, I think it took me, I was just thinking about this because my first editor and mentor, John Holmans, died about a year and a half ago. And we just mm. had his memorial, as you know. And I was thinking about how when I was young and I would work with him on pieces, how I would get so stroppy. I would be outraged. I'd be fighting and I would be like, you know, like a little cat clawing at him. And it was a, a decade before I was like, oh, you're just trying to make everything better and you know better than I do 99.999% of the time. So I'm going to stop being, you know, defensive when you try to improve what we're collaborating on. But it <laughs> took me a long time to kind of get that. And I mean, the turnover is a little faster now that I'm a middle-aged Gen Xer because just, you know, I think that's partly youth. That's sort of what's so fun about being young, right? Is that like, you don't know yet how wrong you are, you know, like you still could, you still could be convinced that you knew everything. I mean, that's how I was in my twenties anyway. Not me at work. I love to be edited. I love feedback. So (laughs) well, I, I know that's amazing. You're a collaborateur. Well, that is true. I like working with other people. And I think that when you work with other people, if you want to stay working with them, there is a part of you that just has to go like, "Mm -hmm, we're all in this together. But also, I I don't know, it's like my, um, my first editor was Ann Friedman. So I walked out. So you know what I mean? I get to work with my editor every day. So it, um, there's something about that that's like very special. Oh, it's magic. I also think that, you know, John Holmans and I, we kind of had a good time like fighting and sparring over what we were doing. You know what I mean? Like that was how he worked. That was also his 
way of doing things in relationships. He was always like on the phone yelling at writers. And then we all were just like, you know, worshipped him, worshipped him. So, I mean, not everyone, not every relationship that's productive has to be, <laughs> you know, I don't know, peaceful. <laughs> I mean, that certainly is true. Um, hey, thanks for telling me about him. I know that it's been, you know, it's been a year since he died and it's been, it's, you know, it's been really hard for all the people who know him. Oh God, we miss his ass. We really miss him. He was the best. Man, I like, I just, I don't understand that people are still dying. Like we haven't fixed that yet. Ugh, like, what I is, know. What are the scientists doing? I'm like, I don't need a battery that lasts longer. I was like, make the people last longer. It's a heartbreaker. Death is death is a real heartbreaker. It really is. And it's also very strange to watch people that you love, like experience their own kind of grief that you're not a part of like that. You know, it's been it. Yeah. It's a private experience grief. It's a, it's a, it's a funny paradox. On the one hand, you need all your intimacy to lean on. And on the other hand, you're kind of isolated in it and there's, there's nothing to be done about that. I've been thinking a lot about the isolation of grief, right? And I think that you're right. In one hand, on on one hand, it's it just slays you in half so much that you just have to go inside of yourself. Like I I don't know that there is a like I don't know that any you just you don't know how you will react until you are confronted with having to grieve. Yeah. But on the other hand, do you not think that at least in Western society, we do ask people to go away and grieve quietly and then come back and join us, and that's weird. Yeah, I think that. I think that. I mean, I found, and I'm not talking about homeless now, I'm talking about like whatever it is now, uh, 10 years ago when, when I, when I lost my baby, like, and that was my first real experience of Mm. grief and I was really in it. And I mean, for one thing, I found it to be a really interesting experience. Like grief is so pure. I mean, you're just there. It's not like murky. You're not like, what is this? What do do I think? You're just like, oh, I am grieving my guts out morning till night. Um, and I find that aspect of it interesting and also isolating because, you know, you're busy with you, aren't you? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that the Jewish Shiva is a ritual that I'm a big fan of. Like that's sort of right. Like you need your people around you and you need them to like bring food and just like that you can kind of collapse on them for a while that I believe in. But yeah, I do think that like, we try, well, I think it's more than grief. It's death. I think we, as a, when I say we, I am just speaking about America. I don't really know any other cultures well enough to have any opinion. We in this country try to pretend there's no death. So grief undermines that. So we don't know how to deal with it. Yeah, it is. You're right though about it being like the purest <laughs> feelings <laughs> because I don't know. It's like, I think about times where I, I have been in deep grief and there are tiny moments where I kind of enjoy it a little bit, you know, for, for, for you're just like destroyed. And then there's usually a moment where I go, wow, I like, it is true that my mother has died and I'm very sad, but it's also true that I'm very much enjoying that. Nobody can tell me anything right now. I know exactly what you mean for once in your life. Everything's clear. I was like, there's nothing you're like, like, this is my excuse right now. And there's nothing any, like you can just feel all your feelings in a way that I find I'm not able to feel all my feelings any other moment. And, sure. you know, but then also you, you know, then you, you admit that on a podcast and you're like, wow, I am an asshole. Um, <laughs> and, then and then it's fine. You know what I mean? I'm like, we're all a disaster and we're fine, but I do. Um, yeah, I I like I genuinely enjoy talking to other people who experience other forms of grief because you realize that the the grief takes on different texture for everyone. Sure. But sometimes some of these feelings are the same and that makes me feel I was like okay, that human connection still exists. We'll be okay. You know, I, I, Angela John's John, I, 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 it's hard to say the word widow about her. It's such a funny word. 
John's love, John's wife, John's partner. I just went to see her the other day and she was just saying how she, you know, spent a lot of the last year alone and that it had to be that way. You know, it's just how she needed it to be um, to deal with her grief. And I, everyone's different. I mean, I know other people who, when they're grieving, can't be alone for a minute. I mean, obviously, you know, it's as, it's as personal as, of an experience as any other feeling. It's just yeah. so much clearer. <laughs> It is so much clearer. Hearing you even say that word, like, widow, like, it's so weird how we have some vocabulary for this and some, and some we don't. Like, we're widow and widower. We, we have, like, we have orphan, but, like, what do you call parents who have lost their children? We don't have a word for that. What do you call a sibling who has lost their sibling? Yeah. Like, you know, yeah. it, it's very weird how also we decide how we prioritize these, like, kind of, these experiences. Oh, and yeah. Who, who, who gets the front seat table and and who doesn't and you know and even within the same kind of grief like everyone has a different relationship with that person i don't know that i think about that stuff all the time right before i go to bed because um i'm a you know love to be morbid is that true you think about this before you go to bed yeah because it just i don't know when i was a kid i used to be afraid of going to sleep because i was convinced that when you went to sleep, you you would die you know and so i would just read all night and I would get in so much trouble with my parents because I, I had a I had a little um, like a little flashlight and then I had, a little, you know, like it would do all the systems not to fall asleep. And now I know that like all kids are kind of afraid of going to sleep. My my own thing was that it was like very specifically related to, to dying. Huh. And uh, and now I'm not afraid of dying because, you know, I was like, oh, actually, when you die, it's sad for the other people. It's not sad for you. You get to sleep. This sucks. Right. Great. And <laughs> now that I've made that association with it, it doesn't matter. But I do have a lot of very morbid. Yeah, I have like very morbid thoughts usually when I go um, right before I go to bed. But now they're mostly around this kind of stuff where I'm just like, ah, like. Why do we not honor the siblings of dead people the same way that we honor their spouses? You know, and so it just is. I don't know. I like. I like words. So I'm. Yeah. I'm just, I. I wonder. I wonder about all of it. I think that's really interesting. Yeah, I never thought about that before. Yeah, I like. I don't know, but we're also just very bad at talking about. De- like, yeah, we don't talk about it, and truly, I'm like, it is the most inevitable thing. It's the only thing. It's the only thing that we know for sure, and yet we don't want to believe it. I'm basically paraphrasing something right now from Sabbath Theater because I've been reading that book so much. Like, that's exactly it. We all try not to know it, and it's the only thing we really know. Ugh, well death i'm looking forward to it death uh, <laughs> it will it will come truly it's i'm like it's sad for other people it's not sad for me um death's okay. tagline should be like see ya see ya <laughs> sad, sad for someone else <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> i know but i do think about this where sometimes i will think about like oh man like do you want to be like my wish is to go very early because I don't think I can stand sitting sitting at the memorials and the funerals of all my friends. I was like, I don't, I don't want to be that person. That that's someone else's job. You don't want to be and the last then, one standing. I don't want to be the last one standing. And then at the same time, I'm like, man, like a party that all my friends are at where they're talking about me and I don't get to control this. I I can't like, it's like a wedding in that way. And I'm not happy about that either. So it's very delicate. Well, also the worst thing about these memorials is you're like, you know, who it would be great if it was here. Home yes. Is. You're like, oh shit, we're missing the guest of honor. I mean, it's just terrible. I know. It's almost like, I oh, trust me. I Again, again, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to fix this in my right before time, like right before I go to bed. Like I'm going to disrupt death. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> that's that's going to be my girl boss moment. Um, yeah, it really will be. <laughs> disrupting death. Um, you're going to be so rich. I mean, I hope so. I hope so. God, I got me little- too. I got little babies to send to college. Yeah, you um, do. And like, I love it. Uh, I have a question for you that is not connected to any of this. Okay. But because when I was listening to the podcast, there was just so much of this like 80s stuff that I mm. <laughs> I just like didn't know, you know? It's like, wow, the 80s were like very glamorous according to this set. Yeah. Um. Besides like the, the glamour of the time that Liz is describing, and obviously like it's glamorous for them because they have so much money. Mm-hmm. Um, what about making this podcast today like feels very palpably different than that world that they were living in? Okay, well, the biggest difference to me isn't about money. It's the advent of the interweb. 
Like mm. there was nothing, there was no online. Everything took place in person all the time. So they're, the way they, you know, their conspicuous consumption took place wasn't on Instagram. It was a party for Saul Steinberg's 50th birthday where his wife Gayford tented their tennis court, had live models act out the scenes of that were depicted in the old master paintings he owned. Like that's not, he owned old master paintings. He collected art and, you know, things like that. Like the way excess occurred was, was so material. And the way people found out about it was through print media. So it was also, things could be glamorous in a different way because they were, information was harder to come by. Like if you read a tidbit in page six of the New York post about a Steinberg party it felt like a spy had been on the scene and you had this privileged information. Not Information doesn't feel privileged that way anymore, kind of ever, I find. So you're telling me that if Kim Kardashian were born 40 years earlier, she would be seen as a very high-class individual? That is entirely possible. Wow. No, I'm wow. kidding. I mean, listen, the Steinbergs are also genuinely smart and interesting. Like, I, I found them to be very compelling storytellers who had interesting insights about themselves and, you know, material culture. Like I, I found them to be vivid people, um, vivid characters in a way that I don't know. Kim Kardashian doesn't. Wow. We'll talk about that on our other podcast with Curtis. Yeah. Yeah. I will say that like you bringing this up, honestly, is there was a level of self-awareness to this family that left me feeling very unsettled, you know, because on one hand, I'm like, yes, like this is very juicy and it's like very, you know, like it's great. And on the other hand, how can you be so self-aware? And also like one of you is definitely lying. Another one, like everyone is just, it's, I feel like almost like this is how, you know, like probably how my therapist feels where it's like, okay. This person is here and she is saying all of the right things, but are the actions matching? And there was something about it that left me feeling very unsettled. I think that that's kind of always a key element in any story that I've ever wanted to tell is like the Mm. distance between what someone understands about themselves and what their actions suggest, even if they're super, you know, self even if they're super articulate and introspective, there's always this distance. And that's like the most interesting part. I mean, that's my favorite part about storytelling is sort of trying to psychoanalyze people basically (laughs) and find a way to convey that. Um, That is, yeah. And I guess it is probably just so much more vivid because you're hearing them tell it in their own voice in a way that reading a quote in a magazine is, you know, I get to say that in my own voice to myself. Well, that's what's so interesting. It's like, there, there are different. So this is there are different conventions in print media than there are in podcasting. Like for example, if someone said something inflammatory, but not totally off base, I might put that in the New Yorker and then say later, you know, so and so has a different take on it. What what Melinda was trying to show me with podcasting that I thought was interesting was that once you hear something, you can't unhear it. Like. You can't let someone say something and then have someone else dispute it without the resonance of the first thing echoing in your ears in a different way than it does in print. Mm. Yeah. I mean, all I can say is listen to the podcast because wow. (laughs) It's just, I, yeah, I've just been thinking, I've been thinking about it so much because it is, it's the level of transparency that you, you know, you like wish everyone would have. And at the same time you hear it and you're like, thank God it's not my family. This oh my God. You know? Oh my God. Perish the thought. I don't want to hear. Oh God. I don't want to say or hear things this frank about I, my family ever. I know. Like, I'm still happy that my dad hasn't found Facebook. You know, I like, I, I like, I'm like the day that man finds Facebook, I am <laughs> disappearing. I'm disappearing to Mauritania. You know, like, I just don't want to be a part of it. So it's, just, it's a lot. It's a lot, man. I could talk to you for hours and hours and hours. Can you tell me one thing before we go? What is one thing recently that you've changed your mind about? Motherhood. Ooh, say more. Well, I have my baby now, as you know, baby Olive. And I guess I was always... Love of my life. Yeah, she's a winner. She, I was always told 
that being a mother was going to be so, so hard every minute of every day. And that is not my experience. I'm not saying it won't happen later. It probably will. But just, I was, I'm shocked. Like, it's just been a joy. Mm. I, and I don't under, I keep waiting for the other shoe to drop, basically. Because I just feel like I was always so afraid of how hard it was going to be. Because everyone said. And I'm like, I don't know. It seems okay to me. Right. And it's. I don't know. I was talking to another friend about this. So it's actually how funny that you bring this up too, because I do not have a baby, but I, I have access to many babies. It's the best thing that's ever happened to me because I was like, being an auntie is so fun. Cause you get, oh. the, you know, I was like, you get all the best parts. And then when they start, like when they're fussy, I'm like, you're going back to your parents. Like you don't live here. And right. so it's very like, it's the best. I have the best. But I was talking to another friend recently who was saying something along the lines of what you were saying, where, you know, and it, and again, like, it's obviously like acknowledging like, yes, like we have more help and more resources, like all of those things are true. And also motherhood is like, it is like, it will be hard. Parenting will be hard. But there is also something I think that about the way that we have just been told, like, there's almost like an overcorrection, <laughs> you know, yes. like for like, it's like everyone is just telling you how miserable it will be that I think like strikes fear in the hearts of a lot of people. And I was like, well, you know, like, is it possible that it's just complicated and it doesn't have to be the most miserable or, you know, some days are fun and some days are hard, unclear. But again, very easy for me to say as the person who I get to, you know, I'm like, I'm going to fill all of the sugar and like send her back to your house. Like, Wait, that's definitely not, not giving her any sugar till she's five. But the yeah, point- not until she's five. But yeah. you know, I, I by sugar, I also mean like you know, like nice oh. jackets. You know, like you- just things. And then she gets to go back to your house. This is what I think about this, honestly. And I, if if, if anyone who wants to send me hate mail about this, like I don't blame you. I you you're right. Like I should. Yes, some some experiences of mothering are very hard. Oh my god, I'm sure. I just not there yet. And like I'm not trying to disrespect those experiences. But I am saying something else, which is this. I do think some of what I was afraid of about motherhood was codependency, basically, was mm. I was afraid of like, what's it going to be like to always have to like fix this other person's feelings. And then I started like reading about it. I was like, oh, wait a minute. What if you didn't look at it that way? What if it, you just didn't assume that every time your child was crying, it was a problem or every time she was unhappy, you'd done something wrong. Like what if it was just another person who had feelings? Then it's a lot less, you know, grueling. I mean, that is, I think that that's fair. And that's, thank you for making my point better than what I was saying, because I was being very inarticulate. And I, I mean, kind of, but I, I will say that like, for me, my, the, the thing that has saved the pandemic for me has been like hanging out with small people. Like I like every good memory I've had in this like wretched time is because someone under the age of 15 has like made me laugh. And it is just like really fun to know small humans. And oh, to also great. Th- and to think of them as small humans. Cause I never, I, you know, again, I was like, that's not how I was raised. And I was like, Oh, you're like, have your own feelings and your own quirks and your own, like, you know, like you're a little weirdo. And the minute that you account for that, you're just like, okay, like, like let this person become themselves. And there's something about it that's actually really lovely and wonderful to watch from the outside, at least. It's fantastic. I find it very, very, that's the other thing. Everyone was like, it gets really boring. I'm like, I do not find this boring. This is not boring to me watching like a small person. Yeah. Human development. Are you kidding? Life. Like I don't find that boring. And, but what you said is exactly it. It's, it's realizing that from day one, they're human beings. This woman I'm writing about for the New Yorker, Janet Lansbury, she's writing this book called Babies Are People. And that's it in a nutshell. If they're people from day one, then it's not boring. And it's not that tragic if they're crying. Mm. Does she write about it just from like that angle? Or is it like babies are people? So also like, um, you know, like policies should reflect that. Oh, like we should like pay them for being humans and we should like invest in them. And like, all like, is there a policy angle to this book? No, there's definitely not. A, she's oh, Gina Lansbury. Now you are going to make it hard for me to read this book. Amina, you or someone else has to think of the policy. She's just telling you to like, tell your kid before you pick her up. No, I'm just saying this because I've been watching all this Democrat Michigas happen oh, with like, what they're doing with our policies. And I just like, you know what? Like, 
the small baby, like children are also humans and we should account for them in how we do politics and we should pay for all of their school. We should buy every single one of their lunches. We should be saving for them for retirement and we should give them healthcare. Like if all of I'm, these things. If for no other reason, like well, I don't understand why the rich don't realize like, oh, that would help me too. If those people were sorted, that'd be better for everyone. The, like the the things that you could fill with like, if the rich realize that X, Y, Z, we would be living in a different planet. That is so, true. No. Okay, man. Now I'm going to plan some adventures for me and little Olive because ah. I do enjoy that little nugget. And yeah, you're right. It is like, again, like, you know, it's not like I see her on the day to day, but I, like, it's just like the dumbest things. Like, oh, wow, your tongue is getting bigger. Your finger is like, like, I don't like bodies are wild to me. Little like, bodies I, becoming bigger bodies. Come on. I like, yeah, I just cannot. I'm like me spoken like someone who does not um is not a parent and doesn't have to feed a baby but I just like I look at them and I'm like wow like things are like human being things are happening over here I don't think there's any see that's another thing I think that's another thing about motherhood I think people say, like make it seem as if there's some difference in consciousness that I don't find there to be like I don't think your experience of children is any less you know in, in deep or valid just because you don't live with one who is like, quote unquote, yours. You know what I mean? They're never yours. They're people like. They are people. You get to live with them. It's neat. Babies are people. Babies Janet, are people. come on the podcast. Talk about this. <laughs> oh, I bet she will. I'm telling you, babies. Are, I don't know. It's not, this sounds so dumb, but. I don't know. I um, it's the, I think the reason I'm charmed by all of it, too, is that when I was younger, if you had asked me about having children, I was not dismissive of it. I just like could not imagine it for myself. That's truly what it was. Because yeah. on one hand, also, every, like the dominant culture has told me that it is hard. But also, um, I know that it's hard because I see how it can be hard. And so, you know, I was just like, when am I ever going to have enough time or money or a partner? To, like, it just like did not it was not in the face. Does not life. compute. Uh -huh. Yeah, it just like never computed. And so it was never in the frontal cortex. And so now I'm charmed that something I thought I had a bad attitude about actually is I was like, oh, no, I just did not have enough human year experiences to like have informed opinions or like be delighted by this. And now I feel differently about it. And I was like, this is the best part about getting older is well, that you just you like become a person and you have more input and you and your life can be different. I do think two things. I think that. I, I, as, as much as I'm like, oh, I don't see why people say it's so hard. I meant emotionally, Logi yes, emotionally, log logistically, it is fucking hard. Like we don't have help, but the reason it works and the reason it's easy is we work from home and we have a comfortable house where she has like a changing table and a diaper pail and we have enough diapers. It wouldn't be so fun and it wouldn't be so easy if I was working full time out of the house and I didn't have a partner and I didn't have enough money for diapers that doesn't sound so great no I mean, you, you have really all those hard. things the amount of equipment that you people are lugging around all the time i was like wow there's a lot happening here i mean that you could do away with but but the time to to not be away at work enough to pay yeah. for childcare. i don't know how people do that i don't that's we have not made it easy for those people in this uh, country. Thank you. Thank you, actually, for thank you for being smart, because you are right to make the distinction between the logistics and the feelings. And but also how the confusion between those two things are why sometimes we offend each other in this conversation, you know? Yeah. Wisdom is a dumb word, but I enjoy the different data and input that you get from just like being alive more days today than you were before. Well, you've and often so, told me that your 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 prime age you think is what sixty three is it? Yeah, you know, but I suffer from that thing of parents have died where I'm convinced that I will not live a day older than the day my mom died. Which I mm. I'm reading a book about motherless daughters and I'm learning that I'm not unique in this. Ugh, mm -hmm. Hate to hate to be perceived. Huh. Uh, um, yeah, so it turns out that like I like sixty three is the age I want to be. I was like, I think that I will I will do my best work that year. But truly, there is a part of me that's like, I like, you know, like 49, like that will be my last day on earth. But, huh. you know, but this is a thing I hear very commonly from people who have lost parents that it's just hard. It's hard to imagine yourself like past that age because that's when you are, you know, the imprint like. Yeah. Through. So we'll see. We'll see. But, you know, if I make it to 50, I'm throwing a big party. So. Oh, my God. I can't wait. 
And then 63, like, you know, maybe I'll even get married that year. Who knows? Like, wild. Anything could happen. Anything could happen. Well, I think it's a really fun thing to think of, like, oh, my God, 63 is going to be a great year for my career. <laughs> like, that's fun. That's a fun way to look at it, you know? I am calling it now. If I'm here at 63, it will be the most exciting year of my career. I can't I, like, I'm wait. T- I'm telling you right now. Um, It's like, I think that, like, I was socialized at least not to, not to be excited about older age. Yeah. And that is... Like, I never believed in that. I was like, I was only ever attracted to people who were older in both like ideas and feelings. And I was like, the only interesting people to me are people who've been alive for longer than. It's funny you should say you're my first friend. You're my first person who I adore really deeply who's younger than me, I think, because I've always been the same way. I think because I'm an only child. So I always grew up like, like imagining that everyone was my peer was like, 30 years older. Um, and I haven't had a lot of younger friends until you. Well, I don't know how to tell you, sister. You're basically a geriatric millennial. So we are the same age. Hello. Yep. Lucky me. Hello. Um, I love you very much. Thanks I love you too. My, thanks for being my friend. Thanks for being my friend. Thanks for having me on your podcast. I love it. Can I give you a true Ariel Levy confession about me as a baby journalist? <laughs> tell me. Tell me. I don't know if we've ever talked about this, but she wrote a piece for The New Yorker when I was like an intern, like year one of my career and quoted something I wrote for Feministing, which is a blog I wrote for at the time and didn't quote me by name, said like a blogger on a feminist website. And I was devastated because it was like I was being quoted in The New Yorker, which is like, hello, oh my God, huge deal. And I wasn't being quoted by name. And like... I sent her an email that was like, I, and I can't remember the exact gist of it, but basically like, I'm really sad about this, you know? Um, and, and she wrote me back a really nice reply. And I don't know that it really fully took like, you know, my baby outrage out of me, but like it really, it was really, really kind and she didn't have to do that. And um, anyway, like a funny minor interaction from a lifetime ago. Wow, the real like rise of media. The story like encapsulates so many things. It's like uh, bloggers versus establishment media. Now the New Yorker has a blog. You know, like, <laughs> we're, all, we're we are all bloggers now. We're all writers and we're all bloggers. I kind of uh, I love that, and we're all podcasters. So that is a perfect. Here is where the media's at moment. The playing field has officially leveled. <laughs> okay, I'll see you on the internet and back on this podcast in a week. I will see you on the internet, my friend. Uh, I hope that you have a very restful weekend and that um, capitalism does not let you down this holiday weekend. Goodbye. Amen. (laughs) You can find us many places on the internet. Callyourgirlfriend.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. We're on all your faves. Subscribe, rate, review. You know the drill. Call us back. Leave a voicemail at 714-681-2943. That's 714-681-CYGF. You can email us, callyrgf at gmail.com. We're on Instagram and Twitter at callyrgf. And you can buy our book, Big Friendship, anywhere you buy books, but we are really partial to independent bookstores. Our theme song is by Robin. Original music composed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. Our logos are by Kanisha Sneed. Our producer is Jordan Bailey. This podcast is executive produced by Gina Delvac.